0: Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. I'm Daniel. And today we're looking at the movies from the mid-90s, going back more years than I want to think about. And uh, to do that, we're bringing on a guest. So, Cam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Yeah, we're... uh, Yeah. So, yeah, this was... I guess the mid 90s was a while ago at this point. <laughs> it's like what, 30 years almost?
1: Yeah, when you say that, it's kind of
0: depressing. I know. It is.
1: <laughs>
2: I mean, I was born worse. in 94 and I just turned 28. So the entire span of my life since the mid 90s.
0: He likes to rub in how young he is, Cam.
2: I don't feel young. This is not me rubbing <laughs> in.
0: <laughs> yeah, like will. Say...
2: Baggins, I feel thin, sort of stretched mm-hmm. out like toast on or butter on too much <laughs> toast. <laughs> Not toast on too much butter. That'd be strange.
0: Well, I so. think it'd be fair to say well, for the mid-90s, for Cam and I, anyway, um, this is probably like when we really started, you know, going to the movie theater and seeing movies, right? Like,
1: Yeah, you, and you're kind of moving away from the, the kids' stuff and actually looking at, you know, movies with a bit more meat to them, I guess.
0: Right, and where your parents will just drop you off at the movie theater and not go to the movie with you and you get to just go with your friends. That's kind of the... <laughs> The time oh, period perhaps. I was <laughs> talking about <you>. here. <laughs> yeah, it was a good time. Good time without cell phones. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember going to see uh, going to see Independence Day, and then coming home from that, and then we actually had like a tornado in our town <laughs> and so i got to see like the aftermath of our town after seeing the aftermath of the world on in independence day i remember that quite clearly
2: it's very <laughs> amusing that you guys are talking about first starting to see movies with a bit more meat on the bones and the first example you go to Ian is independence day truly the thinking man <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a great one. <laughs> Oh boy
2: you know what now for you to have made that and none of your picks to be Independence Day, Ian. I know. Just <laughs> piss. You got to change one, like, right now. Like, <laughs> on the spot.
0: It was close, I won't lie. I won't lie. Um, okay. Well, uh, I think, Dan, you're going to start things off here, hey?
2: Yeah, and I'm going to start off with uh, everyone's favorite nostalgic throwback 90s movie, hashtag that's so 90s, uh, Oliver Stone's Nixon <laughs> uh, a great <laughs> motion picture <laughs> a pretty heavy movie to start the uh the cast with um and i'm not sure why i was like immediately though i wanted to talk about this movie and this specific moment because since rewatching the film this line has just uh stuck in my head so much so for anyone who hasn't seen oliver stone's nixon it's um stone is a pretty outspoken left-leaning liberal in his politics and you know, him making a film about Nixon, I think people had a certain expectation at the time that it would be very like, like just a a, a complete assault on Nixon's presidency and Nixon's life. And it certainly is not kind in its judgments of the man, but it's a lot more tragic in its outlook. It's very much made in the vein of Citizen Kane in terms of its structure and its tone and themes. It also feels very Shakespearean. And to me, the moment that really sells this is near the very end of the film, at this point in life, Nixon's presidency has uh, is ending in disgrace and shame, and he knows his days are numbered. He's reflected on a legacy of failure. He's hated by the American public, you know, height of drama. And, you know, one of the themes in the film, one of the conflicts that runs in the background is Nixon in competition with uh, JFK, that they run against each other. Many years prior, and then in the aftermath of Kennedy's assassination, and as the sort of myth of Kennedy begin, uh, as like Kennedy as the great, the last great American leader builds and builds. Nixon is in the shadow of that as he falls in disgrace, and the moment that epitomizes and sums that up so beautifully is near the end of the film. It's the the fall from from grace of Nixon. He's in the White House. It's nighttime, and there's a moment where he stops, and there's the portrait of Kennedy behind him. It's very, you know, beautiful painting, very dignified. And he slowly turns his head and looks at it and just says, when they look at you, they see what they want to be. They look at me, they see what they are. And it's, I love this line. I think it's both, it's such a, just a great dramatic summation of the entire film in terms of how this character views himself and the way of like taking a really complex history and a really complex person and rooting it in a very, easily identifiable strong dramatic through line of like this inferiority complex to this godlike figure before him that he never was able to live up to was never as good as um and I also think it's a testament that the line works as well as it does because it um it is a really over the top thing to have so formally where you actually have him like saying this line it's a little bit silly if you take it literally but Stone and Hopkins, who who plays Nixon in this film, do such a good job of building the drama and building the tone of this sort of epic story that when he says it, you're not being like, that's a little much. You totally buy into the drama. I, I love it.
0: Nice. I um I actually just watched this for the first time this weekend because I haven't... Uh, I've never seen this one. And honestly, if you didn't bring it up, I don't think I, this would be one I'd even think about watching you didn't um, seem
2: to like it too much if your Letterbox score is to be believed i liked it
0: okay i don't think it's like the secret masterpiece <laughs> that you like to uh tout it as but... i think
2: it's his best film oliver stones
0: oh really you think it's his best
2: i want to rewatch jfk <clears throat> although i'm not totally sure how it's going to play in an era where conspiracy theories are generally not something i have as much patience for um oh. but i'm I want to revisit that one and maybe Wall Street as well. But I like this more than Platoon. I like it more than Born on the Fourth of July. I like it more than Natural Born Killers. Um, I feel like
0: this one and JFK would be like spiritual siblings. It, mm-hmm. That's kind of I haven't seen JFK in a while, but it feels like that. Yeah.
2: yeah, which it's interesting though, even though they're they are, but they're also totally different movies. And the, like Nixon is, in many ways, kind of a traditional biopic, even though it's made with the sort of grand tone whereas jfk i do like the idea of someone renting jfk expecting it to be a biopic and then they're like what the hell is this i guess (laughs) no one rents movies anymore but whatever my point stands the (laughs) big
0: double vhs cases yeah um but i do i do like this this moment you're talking about do you like the line quite a bit there is a quite a bit i do like in that movie like i'm not i'm not saying i don't like it i do um i just thought i the structure didn't work as well for me the jumping around um But there's a moment where he visits the Lincoln Memorial and Mm -hmm. then like talks to the protesters. And I like that quite a bit where he, of course, he he thinks that he's going to go and and it's kind of tied to this line because he goes and he thinks he's going to charm them right with with folksy talk. And they just at some point they just turn on him. And I, Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great scene. Yep. And yeah, and I think it feeds into this line quite well. It's interesting because yeah. throughout the movie, he kind of it seems like he's kind of com, he's comparing <gasps> himself to Lincoln all the time, right? Like he mm-hmm. he's always talking to the memorial, he's talking to pictures of Lincoln. So when when you had this line up in the in the notes, I was expecting that he was going to be talking about Lincoln, but I think it's more suiting that it's JFK, obviously because because mm-hmm. oh, they're peers, especially yeah, and the nineteen sixty election and everything. They're peers,
2: so. but Kennedy gets goes on to get to become the Lincoln of his generation. Maybe right. the last, maybe the last Lincoln, Lincoln that American history gets in terms of presidents, and then Nixon goes the complete opposite route. <clears throat> excuse me, and is like the ultimate cautionary tale of the sort of failed, disgraced president, at least until recently, um, right. so, which is one interesting irony. Watching Nixon now, and I wonder when, like people you know, of a younger generation, if they watch Nixon or if they watch all the president's men, if there's a sort of disconnect of like, what's the big deal? Like, why is this being seen as like such a a miscarriage of justice in light of like, and I actually think there's interesting irony about that in Nixon. Like I love when I think it's one of his aides are like listing all of the things they're trying to charge Nixon for. And they mention bombing Cambodia. And he has this line where he's like, you can't charge the president for bombing a country. President can bomb whoever he likes. And they're like, well, they won't get us on that. And it's like, that's It's such a true thing, but it's like, that's so insane to say it out loud and realize just like, but it's true. And I I think that's an interesting irony that is within the film.
1: I'd never seen this as well. So I just watched it this weekend too. And I'm kind of getting the feeling that I liked it more than Ian did. But I think, yeah, that line at the end there really does. And this previous scene there where he's like crying and praying, I think it really does kind of uh, illustrate how he yeah it was always just trying to prove himself and he just never could always trying to you know got I mean who knows how much of it is true based you know on his childhood and stuff like that but he always just seemed like he was always coming up short and even though when he's the president he's always just trying to be someone better
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah and I think that's that's really key because like again giving this like an emotional through line so it's not just a history lesson um, sorry, my cat slammed into something in the background. So it's not just a history lesson, but it has like a really like not simple because there's a lot of complicated emotions in that, but a really clearly identifiable emotional strand that most people can tap into of that feeling of like feeling like a failure, feeling like you're always trying to catch up or achieve more and you can't. Like those are pretty universal things. But when you put them on the vast canvas of being the president of the United States, they feel so much bigger um yeah
0: yeah, yeah definitely it, it it kind of sums up like uh it's almost like him coming to terms with who he is right that line mm-hmm. that you mentioned i think it is
2: yeah and it's still a mean sorry camera, like, i
0: think i cut you off i lost
1: my point i forgot it. Really, so.
2: <laughs> well the line too is also great as far as like not just him coming to terms but him he's still kind of making excuses for himself where
1: yeah, it's like that's a good
3: point
2: I, I i'm not you know it's like when a wrestler cuts and is like you people and he cuts it on the audience where he's like it's not me it's them I'm I'm they're the ones who have the flaws and they recognize that in me and therefore they tear me down and um which is another interesting layer to it where again like it's sympathetic to him to a point but I do think the film is also like with enough distance from him that we see um the ways in which he is rationalizing things for himself and is not being It's not just a very, basically, it's not just a tear jerking scene. It's not just there to make you feel sad for him. You maybe do feel some empathy and you understand, but um, there is a level of of critical distance too. Because I do think the film is like, as much as I've kind of made the point of, oh, it's not as critical. I always read the end scenes where they show the real archive footage of Nixon's funeral and they have the, oh, he's pardoned and blah, blah, blah. And Bill Clinton is there honoring him and stuff. To me, those sections feel like they're seething with anger. That in spite of this, he still gets rehabilitated in history to some extent, Um, that he's immediately pardoned and then that, you know, he still gets this uh, um, very dignified funeral at the end. I don't know, like there's something overt in the text to indicate a sense of anger, but when I watch it, I always feel this sort of, maybe it's just because it's it's coming at the end of three hours of identifying a man's faults and shortcomings and failures to then quietly highlight the way that he gets publicly rehabilitated, to me, it can't help but feel a little bit like Stone's making a really incendiary point.
1: See, I almost see it a little bit the opposite, because I've always kind of known him as a bit of a villain, and I th- I found that this it kind of humanized him, and it kind of made him look like he was just trying to do his best. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, we usually just see the you know the bad parts of what he had what happened and stuff like that. Uh, so I, I'm more inclined to think that it, it was a bit more surprisingly sympathetic towards him.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I do think it's sympathetic. I just think it's also like to a point. I think, and I also, I I think part of it is influenced by the fact that like the last time I rewatched this movie, I was, the sort of public rehabilitation of george bush that's been happening george bush jr i should specify in recent years has been like just was really in my thoughts while i watched it and so that context bled into it it's very possible that if i watched the film without that context i wouldn't have read it as such a scathing indictment but i'm angry about the bush stuff so i'm like (laughs) stone must be mad too
0: (laughs) well cam cam did you see w the one about bush that that stone made because i think that one also it's i think he surprised people with how he approached george bush because everyone Mm -hmm. thought he'd be scathing on that one too and it did kind of he toned that down quite a bit and you could almost some of it you can tell he's making fun of him but it's almost sympathetic towards him as well in the same way
2: i found his w was very much like this guy is a useful idiot for more nefarious (sighs) powers. Like that's really, you know, like if Nixon, if Stone views Nixon as like this Shakespearean tragic figure who really had noble ambitions and tried and failed and succumbed to, um, you know, uh, let's say worse choices, I think W he views as like an idiot and uh, someone who was taken advantage of essentially. Um, It's been a long time since I've seen W, but my memory of it was very much that it was like, most of it had an almost like darkly comical slant and it was only when you started to get scenes with uh you know the Cheney and and people in sort of ostensibly at the sidelines of power but in the film really portrayed as like being really the ones leading things that um uh you know that you saw the more nefarious critical side and that Bush was just like a a a pawn to be used by them which is kind of what adam mckay did to i think lesser success in uh uh vice could not remember what the cheney movie was called for a good few seconds there
0: yeah mckay was definitely more obvious than what he was going for Mm -hmm. yeah but i do think it's interesting how watching stone approach people that he is very critical of and yeah this one's an interesting one too yeah, because you can you're cuz Cam's right you can you can definitely it's definitely just seeing him in a different light because you're saying that he was you know he was pardoned and that's right and you get the funeral and everything but his ne- reputation never recovered he's always been seen as the criminal president and i think he always will he's got you know company now but <laughs> he's uh he will be seen as that for a yeah, long time so that's I, true I don't know that that redemption is actually exists in the world but
2: well the other thing too is the point about stone it's interesting how he approaches subjects he's critical of i wonder too to what extent that just comes from like being a good filmmaker and realizing that even if he personally and politically hates these people he can't make a movie that's just two and a half hours or three hours or three and a half in the case of the director's cut of nixon i'm just like (laughs) I hate this man and everything he did sucked. Like audiences need something emotionally to latch onto. Um, So there does need to be empathy for the movie to work. Um, And certainly Hopkins' performance too was like, in general, I think he's amazing in this. And I applaud that this somehow was made just before the era of like biopics needing to be like 100% facsimiles of the real people. Cause he doesn't really look like Nixon but you don't, you kind of forget about that after a couple of minutes because you get sucked into the performance. Um, But yeah, he does an amazing job, I think, of, um, you know, playing Nixon as like a person and not as like a monster.
1: A caricature caricature of how we think he's supposed to be.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's (laughs) fun to do Nixon caricatures. So, uh, you know, (laughs) kudos.
1: One thing that threw me off about that is when he first comes on, he's got the brown eyes. I'm so used to like, Anthony Hopkins with those bright blue eyes, like
0: ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I do think Hopkins and Stone were definitely on the same page with what they wanted to do with him, and that comes across quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it is a it is a good line. You're ready. It when I thought it, I didn't even think of it being a cheesy line. But when you say that, yeah, it could have come across as that. But it's, I think it was just a good cap to everything that we had seen before
2: cool Nice. Right. yeah uh, cam what do you got for us today
1: uh well i guess the first one i'm gonna go with we'll move away from the serious stuff and i'm gonna go with dumb and dumber nice uh, so uh i actually saw this one in the theaters with uh my brother and my grandma took us there <laughs> so that was a interesting movie to go with your with your grandma I don't think she got it, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, so yeah, my moment would be, um, kind of early in the movie, you know, they both just gotten fired. Uh, he's got the briefcase. They just, you know, they've got no money. They've got no food. Their pets heads are falling off (laughs) and, and Lloyd says, you know what, you know, let's go somewhere, you know, And he goes on that speech about, you know, someplace hot. I'm talking about Aspen. (laughs) And just that whole spiel there, it just, it cracks me up because, I mean, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, gags and jokes in that movie that are really overtly, uh, you know. dumb and dumber. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Like, and it's like, you know, one of the most, probably easily one of the most quoted movies I know of, of people that use it uh, in their day to day lives. So, you know, there's all those ones that people know, but I really get a kick out of um, like really subtle jokes and gags. So I think that line kind of illustrates that for later on in the in the movie. There's a whole bunch of those little kind of really subtle little jokes that you know aren't super memorable, but I find it really quite funny. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's a good pick. Um, and I agree. I think a lot of the jokes that I to me it's the, those jokes are the best stuff in the movie, more so than like the more overt big gags. I mean, the one line I I or moment I remember really vividly is uh, near the beginning when he's trying to impress the girl who mentions that she's from Austria and he does like this hideous <laughs> Australian accent. Like it's a really simple joke, but it's really funny. Um, And to me, it's also like, it's kind of the more, those jokes work better to me because they're very believable that like, there's a kind of mistake you can imagine even yourself making to try and look impressive (laughs) and just completely (laughs) failing um, because they are honest enough mix-ups that one could do it. Um, I think about on the podcast when I I mixed up uh, Monica Lewinsky and Melanie Linsky, I think is her name. Different nineties figures with similar names. One is the <laughs> actress from Heavenly Creatures. The other was uh, you know, speaking of disgraced anyway, presidents. Speaking of disgraced presidents, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, but like it's 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 like it's not as maybe obvious as like the someplace hot aspen, but it's a similar kind of like just a silly mix-up that makes you look extremely stupid in the moment. Um, and I think most people have can relate to that on a certain either you know, seeing someone else do it or just being the person who does it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a, it's just like, you can see the the place that he's built in his head and it's just like completely wrong. And the other interesting thing is that there's like a moment of actual sincerity with, with them. Cause isn't it like right after he does that speech where he's like, I'm just tired of being alone And then, you know, loser. and Yeah, and then convinces him and convinces Harry to go with him. Or it might be just before, either way.
2: Yeah, it's in that scene, though, yeah, which is... Which, yeah, is also probably worth mentioning, that it does, as silly as the movie is, and as much as it's not meant to be taken seriously. I mean, again, kind of going to the... and Maybe the only comparison you could make between it and Nixon where it's like, there needs to be, even if it's, you know, what it is, there needs to be an emotional through line, even if it's a simple one that needs to be treated with enough sincerity that like, you know, cause it's not, it's not super, you know, prescient throughout the film. This isn't one of those comedies that like where the drama really resonates too, but there's enough that like you buy into it and you can go for the ride. So.
0: Yeah. Their friendship and their, their friendship bonds here pretty well too, because they make that decision. I also just love the line about the pet's head falling off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a like, like, bird's head fell off. What? It fell off? Well, he was really old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so many dumb little jokes. <laughs> I, the one, I, another one I really like. There is when they're when they're in Aspen and like before the briefcase gets open, and. <laughs> Uh, Harry's complaining about his hands being cold and he starts choking Lloyd. And he, again, something that doesn't necessarily resonate with a lot of people, he's just getting choked. And Harry, your hands are freezing,
2: <laughs> it's pretty good.
0: Oh man, they must have had a ball making this movie, honestly.
2: Because yeah, this so... one, go ahead, sorry. Oh,
0: sorry, I was just gonna say, this one came out pretty quickly after East Ventura, right?
2: It was all in the same yeah. year. Was yeah. this Dumb and uh, this Ace Ventura and uh, the mask roll and the mask roll? Yeah,
0: the I mask remember. came
1: out between Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber, I believe. I
0: yeah, this not. is definitely the one that's uh, that's held up more, right? I, I disagree, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the
2: mask 100. percent
0: Interesting,
2: I think Ace Ventura has held up the least well, unquestionably.
0: Well,
1: the, the whole uh, you know. The transgender thing doesn't, uh, yeah,
2: it does not play.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> I do the only part I really like in Ace Ventura is when he goes and sees Cannibal Corpse. That one's that part's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the mask, in part, just because it's the one that holds up the best, even if you don't find it the funniest, just because I think even if it's not like an amazing movie, the sort of comic book style it has and the weird visual effects and ideas I think are neat. Um so I, I will go to bat for the mask. Well, I mean, I go to know. bat is a stretch. I will, like, sort of, like, awkwardly raise <laughs> a bat, but I won't get up off the bench.
1: <laughs> remember that one having kind of, like, a, I think Swing was kind of being revived around that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it had that kind of vibe to it all over, like, just the way yes. a lot of they dressed and some of the music and stuff.
2: And it has, you can tell it comes out in the wake of, like, the Tim Burton Batman movies. Not that it's trying to do that exactly but like a lot of the comic book movies of that period where it's like it's ostensibly not a period piece but it has a lot of like 1930s elements not as much as batman by any stretch but there's those little pieces there that are uh uh fun so yeah uh, the mask the mask supremacy
0: but in the if in the public consciousness which one do you think has uh has survived the best I definitely say dumb and dumber probably yeah. yeah
2: although did the sequel sour that
0: nobody saw it so i don't yeah. know
2: <laughs> yeah but it's sou- i think i i don't know i think that does kind of sour it to an extent in a way you think uh, a little bit yeah in part because like i don't know it, it's a rem- yeah i do i don't know if i can articulate why i think it does but in the same way that like i don't know when people talk about like Independence Day is another example I guess it's the idea too there's a certain like fantasy of like oh what if they did another one and then once they make it and it sucks and no one sees it and flops that deflates the whole thing like they're never going to get their big Independence Day 2 because they didn't wait and try and get Will Smith and they just made the one they did make that no one seemed to see or like and there it is and Dumb and Dumber is probably even more so because like something about watching like old men try to do action is like maybe not great but watching like old men try to do the comedy bits they did in their 20s is like it's painful like i'll (laughs) I'll talk about a kevin smith movie later and that's another one when you see jay and son of bob still dressed like that doing you know snoochie boochies it's like your grandpa's now you can't be doing this no more
0: (laughs) yeah that's a fair point
2: but yeah in the public conscious this one's probably the most remembered and well quoted and
3: Oh it's yeah, like yeah. One the, of the, the local Canadian movie
2: theaters has a Dumb and Dumber clip in the. Op- I think it's Landmark has a Dumb and Dumber clip in their opening like movie magic montage. There's a Dumb and Dumber clip in there, and if that's not legacy, I don't know what is.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's still looked upon quite fondly.
1: But well, none of the, the jokes or whatever are really, maybe saying about you know Ace Ventura, you know nowadays you can't get away with sort of stuff like that mm-hmm. i don't think there's anything overtly um what's the wrong the word i'm looking for there's, like, there's nothing overly nasty or, or yeah yeah
2: yeah just, that's a good point too yeah the
1: goofling. jokes
2: are like even the stuff we're talking about it's just like because even the jokes about them being dumb are like they're they're sort of silly and childlike in a way yeah. so yeah Probably has allowed it to endure a bit more successfully than uh, well, definitely the Nace Ventura. Um, I don't remember too much in the mask that doesn't hold up in like a that way, there's just a lot that doesn't hold up in like a I'm not 12 anymore way. It's like this is just (laughs) kind of dumb, true. But I might feel the same way if I rewatch Dumb and Dumber because I don't think I've seen it in full since like high school.
0: I actually watched it at Christmas because it was one of those movies that just kind of came on and then everybody's just kind of milling around and the TV happens to be on and mm. and it, it got people laughing. That's probably a dead. good way to see
2: it, to be honest. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you pay attention to the gags you know you really like and then you go yeah. and help with the Christmas turkey or whatever. I don't know what you were doing, but I'm assuming there was like a feast.
0: <laughs> oh, it's got to be. <laughs> nice. Good pick, Cam. Yeah. Nice okay i guess i'll go to my first pick and this comes courtesy of my mom (laughs) so so the movie is apollo 13 from 1995 uh directed by ron howard which i think and i'm pretty sure dan i know you at least agree with me it's ron howard's best yeah yeah
2: well it's certainly not the grinch
0: (laughs) no it is not (laughs)
2: And it's not those Da Vinci Code movies. I've seen all three. I would know. Um, Yeah, I think this is pretty clearly his best. It's certainly, it's, I don't think it's like a perfect movie in the sense of being like a a Casablanca perfect movie, but it's not a film that I don't think it has any like missteps or mistakes or
0: Yeah, it's pretty solid.
2: It does what it sets out to do exceptionally well.
0: And so my moment is a very small moment. I mean, that's the name of the game here, but like we're talking like just a background visual which i think is amazing so it's when they're it's right after the launch which people talk about the launch quite a bit because it was a pretty spectacular set piece back in the day um and so it's right after the launch and you kind of you know you're seeing them in the in the in the pit and they're still strapped in and everything because it's the rocket is blasting away Uh, they're just as they're moving from earth's atmosphere to space, you see just in the background behind the actors, the circular window. And as you see that it's like blue, 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 like blue sky all the way. And as it's, you can see things rushing by. And then suddenly it's just, just like that it's black and just black space. And the transition is just, it's just one of those visuals. A you don't expect like you, you expect the rocket's going to blast off and it's going to look cool but you don't expect just these small little elements. Um, And the fact that, that those are put in that Ron Howard puts those in there really adds to the effect, I think quite well. And the reason I'm uh, shouting out my mom is because this is her, a, this is her favorite movie. And B, this is, she constantly talks about this moment. She's like, that's so cool when the window changes black. And she's always saying that. So yeah, that's, I, I figured I had to bring it up. That
2: is a good pick. Um, yeah kudos to your mom that's a good catch and uh, yeah I mean it's I think that actually is also really indicative of why this is Howard's best film because you know like I was slagging on him as a director a minute ago he's not like actively bad really Um, and he's made some solid stuff Rush I thought was pretty good Solo is surprisingly solid for being a Han Solo prequel It, it was decent but he's like he's very much feels like a sort of journeyman like competent but very rarely does does he make choices that kind of make you go like take your breath away or make you go oh that's really special but this is um and I wonder if this was just because it was a project that he could feel as being maybe more important somehow like the story was just you know something that really drew out a certain reverence and a pressure to get it right that he had those thoughts but yeah I think it's it's indicative of why this is his his masterpiece.
1: Yeah. I hadn't seen this in years. And I actually again I remember seeing this in theater when I was a kid. Yeah, um, I did too. Yeah. <clears throat> I had never noticed that moment until you know you had mentioned it. So I was really watching for it. And I like you said, it just kind of boom and it's like, oh, they're in space now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a cool way to kind of a put you in the cockpit with them, right? And um and just know what's going on visually. Like it's it's good visual storytelling, but well, very very subtle.
2: That's the other thing. It it's I like the way you point out that it puts you in there with them, where instead of having like the the wide shots where you're, you know, watching, you know, a spaceship go from the Earth's atmosphere out into space and like the spectacle of that, where like you're really rooted in the um in the perspective with the characters and how not glamorous it is yeah it's just like <laughs> it's just a window and then it what's out there changes um and changes rather drastically but it's not as like in theory anyway it's not as mesmerizing as the you know the big spectacle shots would be uh, and it's also just like a creative way to you know approaching a problem which is since you know really since well since like trip to the moon and 1905 we've seen rockets going into space in some form or other in movies was so like how do you show that transition in a way that's unique and suitably different from the millions of ways it's been done on film i don't know if there wasn't if there was another film that did something similar before but it does stand out as a creative choice to show that transition
0: yeah yeah it's a great moment and it's um like, I think that that whole rocket scene is something that people remember quite fondly, right, the the takeoff scene. And I mean, when you watch it now, you can see the seams, definitely, but it's still pretty impressive. And when I saw, did either of you see the Apollo 11 documentary that came out in the 50th, for its 50th anniversary of the moon landing? No. It, where, where it was basically just like, it was, well, it was straight up stock footage, never before seen stock footage from NASA. And so they, you saw the actual launch and those two scenes are pretty, uh, pretty close to each other. Like it's impressive how, how much he got right in that, hmm. in that launch scene. It was, it was pretty cool to compare. It's pretty neat. That's,
1: that's something that stuck out with for me too, like watching that entire launch sequence. And it really, like you said, even what almost 25 years ago and it still looks pretty solid. It doesn't look really obviously fake or dated or anything like that
2: well and it's kind of also a throwback to the era of like almost what you could call like prestige blockbusters titanic is probably the ultimate example of that but like movies that aren't aiming necessarily for teenagers and they're not action movies or like you know science fiction spectacles they're dramas but they're also made on a pretty large scale with a lot of production value and they're made for adults but the adults aren't just going for a good story they're also going for a certain grandness um which is a form of film that is not super present anymore i mean i yeah. can't i don't even know what the i guess this year would be like maybe elvis would be the closest thing to that but it's also such yep. a specific style with baz lerman that it almost feels like it's kind of weird to compare that to something like uh, apollo 13 but um yeah I mean I, I think that's also and again I, I like the way though that in spite of that and despite of the grandness of that production it's like how we actually get there is pretty small and that's fun you got to respect yeah. that
0: yeah it's a it's a great movie how did it how did the movie in general hold up for you Cam when you rewatched it
1: oh it's still really good I mean I I always liked it and I thought it was you know it's it's such an amazing story in general just like everything that's they were able to do and yeah i thought it was still really well done i thought they illustrated the misery of the astronauts when they're freezing and out of food and sick and just made it look really lousy to be there and i still found myself uh you know when they come through the atmosphere and you're like waiting and even though i've seen the show a bunch of times it's kind of like what's gonna happen yeah yeah. (laughs) you still kind of get that feeling when it's happening even though you know exactly what happens and yeah they pull that off really well
2: Mm -hmm. well ian i know you're also a fan of the movie that beat this famously for best picture braveheart
0: braveheart yeah so
2: i gotta say though if you're handing out the best picture statue which film gets it
0: you know i do oh man i love them both i might give it to apollo 13 though i see it might have the edge
2: well, I regret but. to inform you that's actually the incorrect answer. It should have been Heat. So <laughs> Michael Mann not even nominated in any category. But uh, Sorry, man. It is kind of one of the like amazing Oscar upsets, though, because like Apollo 13, I think, was the favorite and won all the precursors. And it's kind of shocking that Braveheart, of all things, beat it because it's not mm. ostensibly like an Oscar-y movie, really. Um, and if Apollo 13 wins, then maybe we live in the universe where, like, David Lynch or Robert Altman or Ridley Scott wins Best Director in 2001, and not Ron Howard for A Beautiful Mind. So, who knows how history could have changed had uh, had Braveheart not won in
0: '95?
1: <laughs> and Braveheart's good and all, but it's it's not very steeped in facts.
2: <laughs> no, we talked about that actually on the show. Uh, and yeah. Ian's moment was from Braveheart, and uh, frequent guest Michael was like, "It's a good moment, but should point out is." Uh, did not happen.
1: They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a William Wallace, there's a Scotland and there's an England. That's about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. In contrast, though, I think Apollo 13 is pretty accurate from from my understanding. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Even like the, the right.
2: stuff like the I don't remember who it is, but one of the wives like loses her wedding ring in the shower. Well oh, and it's gosh, like that gosh, apparently gosh. really happened too. Yeah. And that's one of those details that when you're watching you're like give me a break and then you look on Wikipedia, you're like, oh shit. Uh, <laughs> criticism retracted
0: <laughs> yep.
1: so yeah that's... i remember talking to my dad about that one like uh apollo 13 afterwards because he obviously was you know alive and kicking those days and remembers it all happening so he would tell me that about uh you know the news updates and everything like that and how close to to realism the movie was
3: hmm
0: yeah and even just in the small details of like how nasa runs and things i think they did a really good job too you know me with my no knowledge of how nasa runs but (laughs) i'm I'm going from third party sources very accurate (laughs) um
2: this is kind of off topic but just because we're talking a lot about Apollo 13 and i don't know when i'm gonna have a chance to bring up this movie again have either of you seen the apollo 10 and a half a space age childhood on netflix
0: (laughs) saw the thing for it but i haven't watched it okay yeah, it's on my it's on my to to watch list like it's on my whatever. i thought you it was lovely
2: list. it's not really about like space or the apollo missions in fact it's kind of hilarious that it sets up this high concept premise of like we have to send you this 10 year old into space and then like 90 percent of the movie is just these are things i remember from my childhood and then occasionally they're like oh yeah it's space But I I don't. I thought it was just delightful, and I want to sing that movie's praises when I can. So
0: I do want to watch it. I just haven't got to yet. Sweet. Okay. Um, Back to you, Dan. I'll. uh,
2: Well, I'll transition to a film that's equally classy. uh, Kevin Smith's Clerks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, I'm. I'm kind of just want to talk about a joke I really like, and hopefully make some sense of it. So a lot of the film a lot of the fun of the film comes from just seeing these random interludes with uh, different customers. Like one guy gets his hand caught in the Pringles can because it's too <sighs> long and he gets stuck reaching for chips. Um, there's he's lots of there. little, there's, there's lots of little, we certainly have little gags like that. But my favorite one is when we see Randall and he's sitting on the desk at the theater or in the, in the video story works and reading a newspaper. And there's a woman, she's got two VHS tapes in her hand. She's talking about like, Oh, they say so much, but they don't tell you if these movies are any good. And she turns around, like, are either of these any good? And the first line he says of just, "I don't watch movies." <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> that alone makes me laugh. But she's trying to get him to, you know, engage, and she won't, and and he won't. So eventually, she she turns around and while holding the same VHS tapes, turns back around and goes, "Well, what about these two? And he's like, "Oh, they suck." She's like, "These are the same two films. You weren't paying any attention to me." And she starts laying into him, and he just cuts her off and goes. I don't appreciate your ruse, ma'am. And that's the line that kills me. Um, but then he elaborates your ruse, your cunning attempt to trick me. I was only trying to point out that you weren't paying any attention. And I hope it feels good. You hope what feels good. I hope it feels good to point out the shortcomings of others. And she storms off in a rage. And then as she's leaving, saying, I'm not gonna rent here anymore, he leans out his head and goes, You're not allowed to rent here anymore. Which, you know, great. Scene. <laughs> And I like it, one, again, the line, I don't appreciate your ruse, ma'am, is just really funny to me (laughs) in any context. Um, But I also think this line, I love it because it's such a great way to write, like, an annoying character who is so stubborn and kind of dumb in the way that they argue that they can't be beaten. Like, she calls him out and perfectly illustrates that he's being a jerk. And inattentive, and yet he flips it around and makes her look like the jerk. And I think that's such a like, you can relate to that ah that that annoying presence. But I also think it actually speaks really highly of Jeff Anderson's performance in this role. Who's not an actor that I think people even think of as an actor. He's just the guy who was occasionally in Clerks movies, Um, but he's really funny. But he also makes you like Randall in a way that you really shouldn't because he is like shitty and he's like un. You know, he can't justify the way he's treating this woman. It's just mean and petty for no reason, but somehow he's so charming in the scene that you are rooting for him, even though, like logically, you really shouldn't. And I just think that's wonderful. Um, and yeah, that's uh that's my moment.
1: <laughs> I think it's almost nice for for anyone who's worked in customer service or anything like that, it's it was kind of fun to live vicariously through Randall.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So I think oh, that's yeah. what
1: helps make him a bit of a likable character. Mm-hmm. Because, like, this is what everyone wants to say to people. Yeah, but they yeah. can't. Good...
2: Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it contrasts nicely with Dante, who's, like, push over the whole movie and will just, like, you know, kind of suck things up. So then when you get to Randall and uh, he's being overly mean, it feels better because we've watched the other character get pushed around. So it's easier to indulge in it a little bit.
0: I think this encapsulates cool. uh, Randall. Is this This whole little exchange really gets to like who he is as a character like it really defines him i think mm-hmm. i also love that the one thing that he actually gets offended by was when she says screw you then it then it's like then he's triggered yeah. by that and yeah. he's like what how dare she <laughs>
2: well, and that's the great comedic finale and when he yells you're not allowed to rent here anymore and then jay in the background just like yeah, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it's so good um yeah this is the tricky thing of talking about comedies on the show is you just end up quoting the jokes you like. <laughs> um, but they're good jokes so
1: i was afraid yeah. to watch this one again because i hadn't watched it in years and i remember um i was talking about watching it and um well justin who's been on this show before he told me he watched it you know recently and this is a few years back and he's like don't do it it's it doesn't hold up and don't wreck it. You have a good memory of it. Don't watch it. So I was really afraid to watch it, but you know some of the stuff on there is a little cringy now. But sure,
2: parts have definitely dated. It's still overall. I think it is still really good. I think it's still yeah. Smith's best film by far. Um, and I like a lot of his other films, at least the sort for the first like ten years or so. But uh, and I think the secret weapon actually is Randall, not just that he's really funny, but later on in the film when Dante's, you know complaining about like I'm not even supposed to be here today and Randall throws it back in his face and he's talking about like you made the choice to come here you choose to you know try and you know get a new relationship with your ex-girlfriend without even talking about how you feel with your current girlfriend and you want to blame somebody for your situation blame yourself and I love that whole speech feels like he's also talking about himself like he acts like an asshole and he's, he's condescending and rude to customers and acts above them but really like he's not making any choices or effort to improve his life Um, and I think that goes a long long way to because I remember like I first saw this film in high school and I just liked it because it was funny and they said dirty words and it was like it was a big leap from Austin Powers to this so um, valued that a lot but I remember rewatching it in my early 20s when I was every summer working in service to pay for school and just like this movie hits differently now um, now I get to the ending, and I'm like wanting to cry because it's my life <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah, I, I I will defend this film. not certainly some of the I mean, the filmmaking is obviously by its nature amateurish, and some jokes have not aged the best, but overall, I think it's uh it's still a good film,
0: yeah,, well, cam, cam, we were. Like, when we met each other, he had kind of already had his first set of movies out, I think, at that point. So yeah. what was your first Kevin Smith, which was the one that um, introduced you to him?
1: Uh, Dogma, I believe. Dogma? Okay. And out of, the, out of the Kevin Smith, that one's
0: probably still my favorite, but...
2: That was my first one, too, because my dad loved it. He's like, you got to watch this movie. It was like 13. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't
3: i think
0: mine ones, was but. mall rats and then people kept saying oh yeah he did make one before but it's like black and white and stuff and so they're like don't bother and i'm like <laughs> oh, okay but i yeah i think clerks is is my favorite out of his bunch yeah. Yeah, dogmas is know.
2: most well made i think overall it's definitely more professional
0: and dogma. i really like
2: dogma that's my second favorite um and matt damon and ben affleck had a lot to it i think they're great in it and Chris Rock and Alan Rickman. Really, everyone's really good everyone's in Dogma. Should rewatch Dogma. <laughs> not available common. on Blu-ray currently. Fun fact, or sad oh. fact, actually. Why not? But, uh, I I think there's some sort of rights issue. Weirdly enough, where like I think the Weinstein's own some of it, but it's not all of them. Like the DVD that um, they put out that was like in the like kind of the cover kind of resembled the Bible, or parts of it yeah. did. Like it had the slip cover with funky art, but then that's the last time it's been put out
1: i had that one but i don't know where it ended up
2: (laughs) you can still find them relatively cheap i think for like used on places but uh but yeah i was thinking at one point of like getting rid of uh, a lot of my dvds even the ones that i hadn't blue graded yet because i'm like well i'll get to them eventually and then i was like oh wait dogma might never get a blue gray release so i guess we'll hoard that so
1: (laughs) that's just sad
0: it in the abyss Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention about your moment too, is I also, for some reason, when I rewatched this scene, I just, I laughed at the idea of her saying, they say so much, but they never tell you if it's any good. I just, I (laughs) love that line too. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, so then I got this picture in my head of like these old movie cases just saying, Oh, this is kind of a mediocre one. <laughs> or like, oh, this one's this one's really good. Um, this one's good on like a, a lazy Sunday, <laughs>
2: and that's actually the one thing that does make kind of even though it's Randall is like weirdly mean to her, it's like that is like a, a dumb question. Yeah, it's like. But uh, uh. <laughs> the other funny thing too is him saying, "I don't watch movies." It's like, yes, you do. <laughs> like. That's the one thing people say of like working in a video store would be fun, like getting to talk about movies and that like when he has that opportunity, he's just like I don't care. I don't want to.
0: <laughs> he's got Dante to go talk to him about. That's true, yeah. <laughs> he yeah. need the customers.
2: This is true.
1: Yeah, I found yeah. those interactions to be really almost genuine, like it, it just, it felt like they actually were friends talking, like it was just mm-hmm. smooth and everything like that. That's the one thing I found about this the whole movie is that like the main characters, whenever they interacted, was really good. It's when they brought in some of the customers and the characters. side people that are those are like, the worst is, actors
2: in the film is, is like the this is bad, yeah, um, yeah, Dante and Randall, though they really have good chemistry. um yeah, in all the films that they've done since I mean, jury's out on Clerk's Three. the trailer was not promising, but uh, no it was not <laughs> but in even in, in, like their brief appearance at the beginning of Jay and Son Bob Strike Back, I think they're still really funny and and fun together. um, yeah.
0: Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I did not like the last Jade Silent Bob movie. I'll say that. Oh, no,
2: it was bad. <laughs> it was it's very difficult good. to be... I, I mean, Kevin Smith hasn't made a film I really liked in quite a long time at this point. So probably since Clerks 2, actually. Although I enjoyed Zach and Mary make a porno, actually. it was. I thought it was pretty decent. Like, not amazing, but it was a solid comedy. Um, yeah. But he's got... He made four films that I value a lot between... Clerks, Chasing Amy, Dogma and Clerks 2. That's enough. You're good. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Good pick.
2: Cam, what do you what do you got for us for pick number two?
1: Oh, that's yeah, me again, eh? So, uh, this one I actually went back and forth on a whole bunch of different moments because uh, we're talking about uh, Seven, which is my all-time favorite movie, uh, which pick. is kind of a weird pick for a lot of people, I think. But...
2: It's an awesome movie, and it's certainly, like, it's the kind of film that inspires a lot of passion. I think, like, I remember the first time I saw it just being, like, blown away, especially because I think it was in high school when I saw it, so it was, like, the yeah. perfect time to, to see that movie.
1: Yeah, so, and, and you know what? My moment is just simply the, the opening credits. Like, after that first opening scene there, uh, we meet the two detectives, and then it cuts to the credits there. And just the, the day in the life of, you know, John Doe. And, you know, the, the, the remix of the Nine Inch Nails song there in the background and just, you know, picking up on rewatches you kind of pick up little subtle clues that, you know, come apparent in the later on in the movie, like, you know, him writing in his di- you know, grabbing his diary and writing, you know, that didn't make sense at the beginning, but now it does afterwards. Him shaving off his fingertips, didn't really pick up on that right away. And then, you know, that becomes a big plot point too and just like i said there's so many um, moments in that movie um, especially on you know multiple watches you can just keep picking up little subtle um, hints and clues throughout the movie and yeah that's mine i'm a big i like david fincher movies so that one really really stands out for me Mm yeah
0: Yeah,
2: it's a nice choice
0: and that like that Nine Inch Nails song is, I think it's got a pretty close connection now with that with that opening scene. Like I think a lot of people connect the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, I don't think it was ever on like a full-on album. I think it was like from like, a, like an EP or something. So <clears throat> like, yeah, it sorts in nicely as being like the Seven song. And it's kind of cool that it's technically the first time that Fincher and Reznor work together. I don't know if they actually like, if Reznor was involved in that remix specifically for the movie or anything like that, but it's the first time you're hearing his music in a Fincher film. And it's interesting to think about how both by the time they work together again in the social network, they're both, um, they've evolved their artistry in different ways where it's still clearly the same people, but it's very distinct from how it looked and sounded in
0: 1995. Yeah. So yeah, it's true. Yeah. And I like the, the idea of actually seeing the killer without seeing the killer and and getting a because I don't think you catch on, on to that the first time you see this movie like I don't I think you're just seeing a bunch of images and I don't know that it's it's clicking necessarily or maybe me because I'm dumb I don't know but <laughs> like, <laughs> that it's not clicking though what you're seeing yet and the, yeah yeah you, you that to it's kinda,
2: specifically the killer and not just yeah. like
0: yeah. Oh, and and then everything and has like
2: and everything comes back in as you were alluding to Cam when you actually get into John Doe's apartment, like all oh, that shit's there. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty it's it's actually like it's not just creepy imagery for the sake of it or even for introducing the killer, it's actually setting up what we're gonna see later too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and like he um Oh, I forgot what I was gonna say.
2: <laughs> That's okay. Never mind. It'll me. come to you later. We'll we'll talk en- <laughs> enough that you'll have time to remember. yeah Um, yeah, it's a really it's a really good opening that I also think is good for like really clearly establishing the movie's tone and the way that it's like it's a fairly not that it's unrealistic per se but it's a somewhat exaggerated really nihilistic portrait of like the most ghoulish and grisly type of killer imaginable and the film's perspective and tone is like (laughs) almost comically dark when you take a step back and look at it and I think it's a good way of like indicating that right from the beginning because the actual like but the pre-credit sequence with Morgan Freeman is is it's certainly like murky and moody and and pretty dark but it's it hasn't fully veered into like how extreme the style is going to be and this is a good way of like really clearly indicating that without actually showing any violence yet either so
1: (laughs) It's not overly violent, either. I, in my opinion, as far as the no. content goes, because like you don't see almost any. I think the most violent thing you see is when when he shoots John Doe
2: at the very end. Yeah, yeah. You don't, the there's not act of violence. It's all aftermath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good point too. Uh, some of that aftermath is <laughs> very ghoulish. Oh um, yes. <laughs> I mean, when I first saw Seven, like the it's I don't even know if it would count as a little moment, but the main thing that always stands out is when they're looking at the. The drug addict guy, and you think he's dead, and then he starts coughing. It's <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> just like crazy. one of the greatest jumps imaginable.
0: Yeah, um... I jumped out
1: of my skin.
2: <laughs> oh man. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I threw this. I threw this on because I think you had picked a different point, Cam have, yeah, earlier yeah. on. And so I was trying to look for that, and I, I wasn't quite sure where to find it. And then I just found myself, well, you know, I was somewhere near the end of the movie, and then I just found myself just watching the rest of the movie because I'm like it's just so captivating <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. yeah it
0: just it's so easy to get into and it, it is dark and gruesome but i mean you're in expert hands and you can tell and i mean this is pretty early in fincher's career but you could tell he had a, he had a pretty strong sense of what he wanted from this movie
2: mm-hmm. there was a for a long time i maintained that it was his best movie i don't feel like it is anymore but uh for a long time i was like it's still seven and i still think it's up there like i He's been remarkably consistent since this so it's hard to i would say. still put
0: it in his top three personally i think
2: i think i had it at number five when i thought it through last time uh, which was kind of low for how seminal the movie was for me when i first saw it but i don't know five seemed a good spot for it at the time
0: <laughs> or seventh that's true <laughs> yeah it's like just out of principle <laughs> yeah
2: it must be seventh doesn't matter at the time when it would have been his like least ranked film it's like you really like it more than panic room no but i cannot break the convictions of my list (laughs) the movie is so good that we all accept the v in the word seven being a number seven even though it makes no sense i was just gonna
0: say (laughs) how is it spelled do you guys consider that it's a seven with a v or seven with a seven
1: I put 7 with a V because I think it's stupid with the 7 but sometimes I'm with
0: you Cam, I am 100% with you
1: (laughs) sometimes when you're doing searches and stuff it's just easier to put the 7 in it because uh, then it automatically brings that up versus 7 Samurai or 7 that's true, I I gotta say
2: I think the truest test is I'd have to find my physical film journal find the last time that I logged it and see what I wrote (laughs) Which I'm now curious was, to do.
0: I was gonna check. Well, well, Cam, you would have just watched it. Did you notice in the credits how it's spelled? Because I think it's just spelled regular seven. In it the is credits. called regular seven, yeah. Yeah.
1: So yeah. as far is as, as mean, I'm
0: concerned, that's how it's spelled. Just because some DVD cover guy is like, Oh, let's put a seven here. That might be fun. And hey, now don't blame the, the DVD cover guy. Expected. It was also
2: on the poster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair.
2: Okay, the mm-hmm. last time I watched 7 was in 2018. Let me find my 2018 notebook so I can oh check goodness. this. You guys chat amongst yourselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's so, funny. I, say,
1: I have to get time. to the
0: bottom of this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I could have picked a million different moments from there just because, say, there is a whole bunch of different little parts about it. Like, again, I don't think I, you catch a lot of this the first time through. I found a lot of this on rewatches. Um, like, near the end um right before he uh right before the sunday brad pitt's character mills there he says my wife probably about three or four times within like a 15 minute period and he hadn't really said it all the entire movie and he mentioned it like three times three or four times and all of a sudden her head's in a box
0: right yeah he's just trying to get it back into the audience's consciousness again right yeah make you thinking about that yeah
1: which is I mean that's how every Gwyneth Paltrow movie should end
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's why you came in this podcast to spread your anti-Gwyneth Paltrow (laughs) propaganda (laughs) no no she's fine in the Marvel
1: movies
2: (laughs) you don't have a Uh, subscription to the Goop Network what is that that's like her her self help stuff.
1: Oh oh my.
2: All right, here's the test. So the last time I watched seven was apparently February 17th, 2018, which is further back than I would have thought. And as we see here, my notebook put that up to the camera.
0: Oh no you did it. You <laughs> did it. The
2: seven in the title <laughs> and I I mean I guess so um so I guess that settles that.
1: Oh boy. <laughs> i'll say putting that seven in there doesn't make like I say it makes it easy quickly identifiable everyone knows exactly what you're talking about
2: mm-hmm. it does True. it is very stupid though but it's like i really do think that the movie is just so good that we let it get away with it <laughs> you know
0: but otherwise we have to start calling it CES seven and and that just no, <laughs> doesn't work
2: this is just your like analytical mind that you like can't
0: sometimes i can't turn it off <laughs>
2: It's like the blue it's not really the same but it's the same as like the no uh blu-rays that have multiple films in one box.
0: Yeah. Oh, drives me nuts. Yeah, you were it, like really roasting
2: do. me on Twitter for it.
0: <laughs> well, someone's gotta.
2: Well, you know, it's good for you to take that role. So yeah, uh you have it definitively as according to my uh the film journal of Daniel Simpson volume 2 was the second <laughs> variation.
0: This is kind of reminding me of a certain uh, opening credit scene that, that you just oh, talked my, about. My Cap with the journals.
2: <laughs> it is covered yeah. in skulls.
1: So, um,
0: let me see your fingertips.
2: Uh, I mean, there, my one nail is kind of messed up. I don't know if you can see it. but <laughs> I caught it on something. So, in that way, John Doe and I are alike. We both yeah. have notebooks and we both have disgusting fingers. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's where the similarities end. yeah yeah. i'm not as good a photographer as he is yeah
1: (laughs) yeah yeah there's a throwback that i don't think a lot of people are going to understand in 20 years having (laughs) your own dark room like that
2: yeah that's true eh yeah um although i will say the movie like there i don't think i even clued in until reading must have been ebert's review but he talks about how like there are elements of the film that are like that evoke like an older like era of noir films even though again it's ostensibly it's set in the 90s but there's little stylistic touches that echo more like the 30s or 40s yeah um yeah, not definitely. as far again as something like you know batman which is like fully there <laughs> but uh
1: okay so speaking of batman did you guys ever hear the theory that because this city is never named in seven that right. The theory that it was Gotham before Batman was in there, like they're living in the heart of, you know, the poverty stricken before the Waynes come in and try to revamp it, and then before Batman comes in to stop
0: crime. Nope, I had not heard that one at all. Oh, yeah. I've that never heard the thing.
2: theory, but I wonder if it comes out in the aftermath of like Batman Begins being clearly inspired to an extent by Seven.
1: Yeah, Oh, well, maybe. I, like I I don't know how old it was, but I remember that coming out it's like that's an interesting theory
0: hmm. it is although i think vinger just wanted it to be any city right like that's probably yeah, his... just a
1: good nameless city yeah
0: yeah why not gotham then why well, yeah
1: gotham, exactly yeah. kind of <laughs> looks the same dark dingy climbing, a, lot you know.
2: a
0: lot of rain a lot of weird all the freak time.
2: people really not just committing heinous crimes but being like elaborate about it where it's like I've got my creepy notebook and my clues like you can't just kill people you got to do it with some like after doing like a, a, getting a degree in drama school before you start committing your crimes <laughs> yeah. well, I um,
1: want to know what John Doe's original plan for wrath and Envy were before they had it the, when they uh, ran into him at his apartment yeah. Because on the phone call there, he's like, I've had to go change my plans. I don't want to ruin this prize. So sure. what was it before? we
0: will never know.
2: Yeah. No. Until they make the prequel. Six. <laughs> Apparently there were plans for a sequel called eight. I don't know how far they ever got, but it was like proposed yes. at new line at some point. And I think they may have like, I don't think they ever developed a full script, but there were like, oh, there was a pitch.
1: Yeah. I remember that. I was working at Husky actually. At the time. As a convenience store when Clerks was one of my favorite
0: movies. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's all full circle. Yeah. Well, they'd have to recast uh, John Doe with um Christopher Plummer, but they can't do that anymore. No, they so. can't.
2: So there's a lot of Christophers though you can put there instead. Walken, Pine, Pratt, uh, Hemsworth, Evans, <laughs> Rock, Simpson, <laughs> my father. He's not an actor, but I'm sure he'll do it. <laughs>
0: oh boy yeah good movie gam
1: yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah i watch that one probably every year
0: nice uh okay well i guess i'll cap things off with mission impossible and a franchise that is still going from 1996 to the next couple of years at least and he's uh, a <laughs> And now he's, like, flying on biplanes just as a promotion, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just for fun. Oh, he's crazy. Okay. So, anyway, Mission Impossible. Back when the franchise had its modest beginnings.
2: And it's funny to say modest over this, like, super slick, super stylish, uh, at the time, like, cutting-edge special effects action movie. And it's, like, oh, yeah. well, how modest <laughs> the first Mission Impossible was. <laughs>
0: um mission impossible was yeah one of those 1996 was a huge year for like just movie going for me because like i mentioned we had independence day you had twister um and then this one was a pretty big one in that mix too and
2: the best of those three i would argue
0: yeah but i got a pretty uh pretty big soft spot for independence day we which (laughs) was (laughs) established But Is Bill Mission Pullman Impossible-
2: still headlining $200 million movies? I do not think so. <laughs>
0: this is true. <laughs> I, haven't That's him. <laughs> I haven't seen him a chance. I haven't seen him fly his own fighter jets. Um, <laughs> so the moment I'm going to talk about with Mission Impossible is a moment when there's kind of this exchange. The whole the purpose of the movie is that there's this, what they call the knock list, which is like basically a list of all the agents and all their undercover um, identities, basically, so that if they got in the wrong hands, they know every single agent. So it's pretty high stakes. And of course, they—the whole thing is that they have to steal this knock, get this knock list, and keep it out of the out of the terrorist's hands and all that, and get it back. And he has to prove his innocence by basically giving it back to the CIA. Um, and there's a scene where. They have the knock list, and it's in a disc, right? It's on this. What do they call those discs, Cam? Those
1: floppy discs.
0: discs. They weren't. They were like the hard floppy discs.
1: Yeah, but they're still called
0: they're floppy still, discs. We still call floppy discs. Okay. So it's yeah. on like the hard floppy disc. And the. Why yeah. am I blanking on the guy's name? Reno. What's this? Is it just John Reno?
2: Leon the professional?
0: Yeah. The French guy the french leon the
2: professional that's his okay that's his
0: name okay leon the (laughs) professional (laughs) gets a hold of the gets a hold of the floppy disk and and then um you see ethan hunt who is of course tom cruise kind of doing this oh you mean this one here and he pulls out a second disc and he starts like doing all these tricks to show him that he didn't use sleight of hand uh to get it from him and so you, you know makes this guy think kruger is the is the guy's name like the the character's name and it makes him think that he's you know he was given a fake disc the whole time and so he basically makes him mad and then he he checks the disc and walks out because he's basically he's done with his group he showed his treachery um and so they let him walk out and it's a it's a cool scene right it's a very spy like scene which is one of the reasons I love mission impossible, the first one more than the other ones is because it's very much a spy movie. And I really like that, but then they do something pretty cool. And then there's, there's a little bit more interactions with the characters and then it's just um, Tom Cruise and Bing Rhames at the end. And then they do something cool. They actually have Ethan Hunt go to the trash can and pull it out and switch them so that Kruger had the real one the whole time and it's just a really neat detail it's um because i think it does a few things a it's not necessary it was already kind of a cool you know switch them up trick them scene as it was but the fact that it was all for show is it's a detail that wasn't necessary but it was added in anyway and so you kind of ask yourself well, what was the purpose of it then um well a it shows It does show Ethan Hunt as being fallible because at that point he wasn't hanging off of the tallest tower in the world yet. He was, he was just a spy and he does make mistakes, but it also shows that he's adaptable and it shows him in, it shows his skills and why he is the best spy in the world at this point. Right. Um, And so you see how he was able to do it. And I also like that. It's a problem that isn't solved with violence which is kind of nice to see um with spy movies like this you don't always have to have a shoot 'em up to solve the situations it's you know he's he's using playing with the mind and so it's just like a and it's a nice twist for the audience it's like oh wait a minute he did have it the whole time and it's just pretty cool pretty cool scene i think
2: yeah i like a lot of what you said including that This is the best one of the series. I agree. It's my favorite in part because, as you say, it's more of a spy thriller. And it's Mm -hmm. really like that Hitchcockian De Palma tension. That's just so good. Um, But the other reason I like this movie the most is because it's my favorite version of the Ethan Hunt character, which is to say he's an asshole. And I like that when he's doing (laughs) the little tricks with the disc, he's kind of just being a dick.
0: Yeah, he's really showing off. He's showing
2: off. Because like each movie, like Ethan is barely a character to begin with. And then each film has kind of like changed who he is. In the first film, he's like just cocky, dickhead hero. In the second film, it's kind of an evolution of that and he's like an adrenaline junkie almost. So he just needs the rush of it. And then in the third movie, he's boring family man. And then in the newer ones, he's like, he's just a really earnest hero who wants to save the world. and He can't sleep a, a night's rest without wanting to save everyone. And I'm like, that's boring Ethan Hunt as just like a cocky dick who also is like an adrenaline addict who needs like the biggest you know death defying things he can do for his own amusement that to me is way more interesting and fun as a character and also more believable for Tom Cruise to play Um, and I think this film is it taps into that where it's like he's kind of He's kind of being, you know, he's being a show off and he's being unpleasant in some ways, but there's it's fun in a way that I find he's he's more boring now, even if he's technically more fully defined as a character. No,
0: that's fair. Yeah,
1: I d I didn't remember this scene until I watched it and it's it sucked me in because I completely forgot about it. And yeah, I I enjoyed it because yeah, like you said, he makes mistakes and he was a but he was able to Think, think quickly on his feet which is you know probably a sign of a, a good spy to keep your cool under you know when this guy's got your your list that he's trying to yeah. hold hostage on you and, you're uh, to, and actually
0: uh, I had kind of forgotten about this scene too until I, because I, I was kind of thinking okay I think I want to do Mission Impossible for this week and um, Kimberly had pointed out a few ideas I could use she really likes the uh the idea of the bible and having the bible be the key that kind of he puts together once he he notices the gideon stamp um she still quotes the those damn gideon's line all the time (laughs) and um and so i was watching it for that and then and that was kind of pretty similar to the scene and then i kind of got onto this scene and i was like oh no that's what i'm going to talk about because that's it's just it's just cool it's just a neat little trick and how unnecessary to the plot it was. Like, you could, he could have cut that, but I think it does add, I think it adds something for Ethan for sure. And just the fabric of the spy movie.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I like it that it is, or both of you guys, that it is like a, a spy movie. It's not an over the top action film. And it's, I think by that, you know, it does still hold up fairly well like there's not really bad visuals that you sometimes see in that era because it's not overly reliant on them.
0: No, I think it's pretty slick. Like you've got, you've got the famous, um, you know, white room scene, but that's very stunt, stunt uh, centric, right? So uh, they pull that off really well. And then you've got the train and yeah, I think the train sequence still holds up really well. Like the going through the tunnel and,
1: yeah, there's only a couple bits that were kind
0: of like, yeah, that that looks dated. That's a great movie.
2: I think parts have shown their age a little bit visually, but yeah, for the most, it's no Air Force One where you get to the plane at the end and you're like, oh my God, what happened <laughs> in the movie? <laughs> um, And I think, I mean, it's a testament that, you know, they've brought back, uh is it Kitridge, the guy's name? Yeah. He's in the new one, yeah. he's in the trailer. He is. And that's the guy that confronts him in the in the fish uh, restaurant. Um, with that yeah. whole scene is shot from like, uh, <laughs> it's all low angles. Yeah, it's like Dutch really, angles. it's like directly underneath their chin, basically at a Dutch angle. It's it's great. Gotta love Brian De Palma. It's just a conversation <laughs> and he shoots it like an insane man. Um, I love that scene too. Me it's too. so yeah. full attention.
0: It's great. That's maybe my
2: favorite scene in the movie. Mine too, um, actually,
0: probably. It's pretty, The thing
1: it's that killed me about that though is like, When uh, Emilio Estevez's character gives him the the gun words like, you need to blow a lock? You know, just put this on there and it'll pop it right off. So then he slaps it on the fish tank there and it blows a guy for 30 feet out the window. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fun one. And I love too, the bait and switch just with the team, that it sets up the team and it's actors who, and this is kind of lost on any modern audiences, but they were actors who were like, like hot up and coming or well-established actors and then it's like, oh, that's the team. And then they all get killed in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> it's
0: great. Yeah, that's a great movie. Um, like, I still, I know you might, you sound like you're a little more down on them, Dan, but I, I still like the new movies quite a bit. Oh, I like enjoy them a
2: lot. I like them. They're all. very,
0: yeah, they're very enjoyable. Spectacles. I like the John
2: Woo one. I'll defend two. <laughs> I think well, three is
0: the weakest. Good for you. Two is great. Oh, sorry. Well, Three is just forgettable. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs>
2: if you take Philip Seymour Hoffman out, it has almost nothing. Yeah. Um, two, you say what you want about two, but when the bad guy looks over and realizes that he has not, in fact, killed Hunt, but it's the guy in the mask, and uh, it's actually his buddy, and then you cut to, you know, the the friend or, like, the actor who plays his, like, right-hand man putting the stuff in his pocket and he rips off the mask and it's Tom Cruise and that like rock version of the Mission Impossible theme kicks in and he starts running. That's beautiful. And I I <laughs> I defy you. There's no way you can watch that scene and not feel a little bit of excitement.
0: Okay. Well, it's the magic I'll of John Woo
2: it. and Mission Impossible too. <laughs>
0: it's been a long time since I bothered to watch the second one.
2: It's good. Okay. Somewhat. It it's drags in parts, but it's got nixon star anthony hopkins as the leader of the imf for one scene he's got like a great line too where they're talking about convince because it's the notorious plot where you know she's got to infiltrate right. the bad guy and so hopkins is pitching that to cruz and cruz is like oh, it'll be difficult uh to convince her and uh he goes we're not mission difficult We're mission impossible difficult will be the walk in the park for you it's like ah oh, it's great <laughs> it's so good it's delicious and hopkins like he just you know he just kind of he doesn't like chew the scenery with the lion, but he, he relishes it a little bit and plays up the cheekiness. It's great. Oh, well, it seems like... like
0: you might be a Bond fan.
2: <laughs> I'm not you're talking about. Um, yeah, Mission Impossible Two is good to an extent. It's, it it drags points, but the the third act is is bonkers and fun. It's got Metallica's "I Disappear" on the soundtrack, a song that's pretty all right.
1: What were you one of the things that sparked the whole uh Napster thing was it not
2: it's definitely like, that getting,
1: era people getting early access to that song or something some I don't like think that.
2: that would have helped spark <clears throat> yeah so there you go like that's the thing. Mission Impossible 2 fundamental point in pop culture history Metallica <laughs> Napster also uh because Eyes Wide Shut goes over shooting schedule Mission Impossible 2 gets delayed therefore Duggery Scott can't play Wolverine therefore Hugh Jackman is cast in the role instead
0: there we go like dominoes are clear
2: mission impossible 2 <laughs> is a seismic moment in pop culture history <laughs> uh the the you know one of the sort of um tentpole john woo working in hollywood movies not the best that would be face off um <sighs> but certainly an important moment in that in his career um also set a precedent that was really exciting with the mission impossible movies for a while where each film would have a new director who would do it in a totally new style which they've since abandoned, but it was cool as an idea. Um True. yeah. I like you.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, going back to Clerks for a second, because you did mention the, the soundtrack there and everything from Mission Impossible, Clerks had a really bitchin' soundtrack.
2: It's good. Like it's, it's really straight
1: nineties awesomeness.
2: hmm There's even an Alice in Chains on there. Like you can't yeah. go wrong.
0: I mean, let's bring it right back around. Dumb and Dumber. How popular was that soundtrack when it came out? <laughs> like, yeah. that was on top of the charts, the, sound, the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack, for some reason. <laughs> it had that one big song. The Crash Test Dummy one. Yeah, it had the Crash Test Dummy song. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, but the yeah, 90s, Clark's why, why was
2: better. the 90s the era of the soundtrack? Cause, like, it the really Crow... was dazed and confused even which was a flop but the soundtrack was like soundtrack huge. was
0: huge for that they put one, it yeah. two they yep. put it a
2: second volume yep um uh, which is i mean it makes sense because it is an amazing collection of 70s rock but um i don't know something about the 90s was the maybe it's like it's like the last gasp of making money by selling music <laughs> well it's because the
0: 90s like cds were oh, huge yeah. like cds took off and yeah like Buying music was a big thing. Music stores were uh, were taken off right here in Canada. We had HMV. They had I don't know what they and had. And you know who States. tried to
2: preserve that era? Metallica. And all Lars Ulrich got for it was, was pain.
0: And it's all because of Mission Impossible 2. It's
2: all because of Mission Impossible 2. It was a seismic <laughs> film in the history of culture. <laughs> Every time we come back, I'm inflating its legacy
0: more. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I'll tell you i am excited for the next one for seven Me too. i'm yeah. really excited for it mm-hmm. have you seen the the newer ones cam or not
1: um i think the last one i
0: saw was ghost protocol okay yeah which i didn't hate yeah they're pretty they're pretty they're much in the same vein yeah
2: i think um fallout was the one that people like really went like nuts for which is the most recent one that's been released i actually think i preferred rogue nation which was the one right before in part because it it's harkens back a little bit to this first movie and it's spy movie um you're
0: you're right perhaps. it does you know
2: um i mean the 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 opera set piece definitely feels De palma inspired true so yeah like if all the other directors had their own style of mission impossible christopher macquarie's thing is kind of trying to take all four of the prior directors and like distill them into like what the mission impossible movie is
0: yeah Yeah, but I still, the first one's still on top of my list, that's for sure. Me too. Love it.
1: I remember people talking about how confusing that ending was there and I don't understand why they think that's confusing. I don't know.
2: Um,
3: I just remember that.
1: Yeah, when it first came out, people were like, oh, I I don't get it.
2: Well, I think it it, (laughs) I I do think it is a little bit more like it asks you, I think especially if you watched it on, on video at home while you were like doing you know the crossword it's like when people talk about and this is to me even more baffling but like pulp fiction is a confusing movie it's like it's really not at all it's very like a to b it's just that it's um the stories themselves are out of order but within the stories it's all pretty clear um but tarantino's a line where it's like i don't think my movie's confusing but you have to watch it you can't have it on in the background when you do something else at home. And I think, yeah, if you're watching Mission Impossible at home, like one would a Twister or an Independence Day, where you can kind of fold laundry in between scenes, you're going to miss stuff, and it's going to be confusing.
0: I just think Internal Affairs was setting him up all along.
1: (laughs) Make that up in your head, Ian. (laughs) what I do?
2: (laughs) When you're bored of the movie. (laughs)
0: Nice. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. That's my pick. Nice. All right. I well, there we go. That was picks. the. Big I 90. sat and watched five movies this
1: weekend, and they were all really good. So it was pleasurable. <laughs> yeah, that's hardcore, Gab. Way to go.
2: <laughs> you watch more movies for the show than either of us have.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, again, I mean, I had never seen Nixon. I it's been years since I watched Jane and Son and Bob or um, Mission Impossible and or sorry james have Clark's clerks yeah. and overwatch seven because i wanted to <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's fair. there you go yeah oh that's awesome well i hope you enjoyed your movie weekend
1: it was uh, not bad yeah
0: yeah thanks nice. yeah so uh, we got some good ones here we got some blockbusters we got um the wave of i think we hit the wave of the um the rise of the indie director right Cause that was a pretty big thing at this point too mm-hmm. yeah nice
2: which depending on how you look at it kevin smith being the representation of that is like the ultimate insult to the independent american cinema scene <laughs> like that's <laughs> your representation of us not link not spike lee not soderbergh <laughs> smith <laughs> Never I forget that Andrew Ceres in, in a special, <laughs> I think it was sight and sound did like uh who is the next Scorsese and different people wrote who their arguments were. and Andrew Ceres put Kevin Smith. Really? Scorsese himself put Wes Anderson.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really, I think Tarantino probably, although people don't see that because he he rose so quickly to like um, yeah, I mean the it depends, premier I guess, director.
2: Too, like, how are you defining the parent, Which I would be interesting actually to go through that special magazine and read the different arguments but like how do you define what the next scorsese is like is it stylistic similarities or is it something more
0: i meant more like the the representation of the indie scene i think oh yeah yeah yeah. Tarantino's probably
2: Mm -hmm.
3: but
0: some people i think now because he got so big people maybe not see him as no yeah back then anymore
2: and in part because his indies like you compare like something like Spike, somebody like Spike Lee or or Richard Linklater, who are like really rooting their films in a in a lived experience versus Tarantino, who uh, is like the lived experience of a nerd who worked in a a VCR or VHS rental store, you know, like most of his films, like there's there's a lot of personal stuff in them. Like he's given interviews, he's talked about like Kill Bill is a much more personal movie than it might appear on the surface, but it's coded in a very fantastical genre elements. So yeah, I think when people think of the indie scene, they think of it being more like
0: more personal, yeah, more
2: personal, more real, and yeah. you don't watch, pulp fiction to go like this is really real.
0: <laughs> yep. Nice. Okay, well, I think we'll wrap her up there, Cam. Thanks for coming yes. on. Thanks for having me guys. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was awesome. Good to have you. Yeah. Um, Dan, you got anything coming out?
2: Uh, with any luck, do, the... so yeah.
0: You up. <laughs> set me up by the time
2: this podcast is out no doubt my video essay uh the death of michael corleone how i learned to love the godfather part three question mark is released um, i thought it was a
0: bold move to to actually come to the realization that you like three more than two and state that
2: well you know i'm I uh, that was bold um i i live bold <laughs> just like the doritos chips tell me too i live bold um <laughs> you know you got to watch my video and hear my my detailed arguments for why so (laughs) so there you go
0: nice awesome um well there we go uh i guess we'll wrap her up there if you guys want to talk about your own 90s movies and 90s movies moments what movies did we not talk about that you wish you would have heard um should we have talked about mid
2: 90s directed by jonah hill
0: no we shouldn't have we're fine (laughs) i haven't seen it yeah so we're on twitter at cinema underscore seconds um cinema in seconds at gmail.com for the email and there we go cam do you want to share your your uh twitter that you're never on
1: no that's fine no i didn't think so (laughs) i mean i probably should start doing on there but i mean you're fine that's cool know
0: it's, yeah. it's, the it's only life. worth it only worth it to see updates from cinema in seconds yeah uh, hey, nice. <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks for listening everyone um i've been ian and i'm daniel and we'll see you next time